newspapers were different in the 1800s than today. Maybe because life was a little slower and people cared about different things, but many times the newspapers were full of nothing more than interesting goings-on. Social events, gossip, advertisements, and I don't know, maybe something happening in Prussia. Don't get me wrong, there was still news of major crimes, national events, and all the political blah blah blah, but there wasn't enough of that to fill a paper. And if you ever take the time to read those old papers and sort through all the small notices, you'll find some interesting nuggets. That's why you should all read the Arizona Weekly Gazette from September 2nd, 1892. Under the headline of A Queer Quest, the Gazette's readers found the following piece of news. Quote, Mrs. Julia Thomas has traveled by wagon to the western end of Superstition Mountain in search of a gold mine and she has returned unsuccessfully. End quote. Yeah, not exactly the material you'll find in the New York Times. But this sentence-long story is important for one very good reason. This is the first time that any part of the story of the lost Dutchman mine would appear in print. And fittingly enough, it's all about an enthusiastic treasure seeker going into the desert and only managing to find disappointment. Mrs. Thomas was the first, but certainly not the last person the papers would write about when it came to the fruitless search for Jacob Waltz's mother load. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 143, The Treasure Hunters. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you didn't miss the podcast too much Why I took a week off for family matters, but on the other hand, I hope you did miss it somewhat so you'll keep listening. When last we left off, we followed the life and times of Jacob Waltz, the enigmatic Dutchman slash Deutschman who would disappear into the superstitions and come back with gold. We left off with his death in October 1891, which would usually be the end of such legends. However, this is what sets the Lost Dutchman mine apart from other mysteries and oddities. Almost immediately, the obsessive search for his mine, something that persists to this very day, started. The first person to start the search for the mine was also one of those present at Waltz's death. Julia Thomas, who had been essentially his landlady and caretaker in the Deutschman's twilight years. Now, you'll read in some places that Julia was either black or mixed race, but Tom Collenborn says that she was actually the daughter of German immigrants, like practically everyone else in this story, and she had been born in Louisiana in 1862. Her early history is not that well documented, but Julia, whose maiden name was Korn, married Emile W. Thomas in Colorado City, Texas in 1883. They would move to Phoenix sometime in the 1880s and open up a confectionery store at what today is somewhere between Central Avenue and First Street. Julia's husband then drops out of the story in 1890 when he abandoned her and moved to Washington, leaving her to run the business herself. But a year and a half later, she would sell this business as she tried to gather funds for her quote-unquote queer quest. 
Because, as we know, after her husband left, she had taken in Jacob Waltz and was possibly privy to insider information about where he was getting that gold-bearing quartz that everybody knew he had. On August 11, 1893, so 10 months after Waltz shuffled off this mortal coil, Julia headed into the Superstition Mountains. The 29-year-old woman had sunk all her money into this quixotic venture, certain as she was of success. But she hadn't gone alone. Into this scheme, she had roped in Reinhard Petrash, the young German immigrant who possibly had saved Waltz's life during the 1891 flood, and who definitely had spent a lot of time soaking up the Deutschmann's stories. Reinhardt also insisted that his older brother, Hermann, accompany them. Though he was skeptical at first after hearing Julia and Reinhardt's recounting of Waltz's instructions, Hermann was on board. Herman would later recount that they abandoned their wagon and team roughly three miles from the mountains and then spent several weeks searching near Weaver's Needle on the west side of Bluff Springs Mountain. This being August, the temperatures were so hot they did very little during the day and could only really conduct their search in the cool morning hours. However, as the newspaper clip we started the show with already said, after a few weeks, they had to return to Phoenix empty-handed. The irony here is that, according to Cullenborn, the trio actually passed through where just a few months later claims would be filed for the Black King, Mammoth, Mother Hubbard, and Tom Thumb mines, which would make their discoverers tens of thousands of dollars. And personally, I feel this gives credence to the theory that the Lost Dutchman mine is just a mine we already know about, albeit by a different name. But, missing the forest for the trees, Julia, Reinhardt, and Hermann had nothing to show for their weeks in the desert. And for Julia, this meant she was also utterly destitute, without a business or even a home to live in. This was the end of her treasure hunting days, though she continued to make some money off the legend of the Dutchman. In coming years, she would produce maps ostensibly showing the exact location of the mine, which she would hawk to any interested party for however much she could get, usually between three and ten bucks. These maps, of course, were actually useless when it came to finding the mine, but did provide her some limited income. Julia actually remarried in 1893 to a man named Albert Schaefer, who encouraged her little side business, but eventually the two would move to Morristown, Arizona, where Julia would pass away in 1917. Her fellow treasure seekers wouldn't have a much better end. Reinhardt became disenchanted with the search for the mine after their unsuccessful trip, though he would occasionally make further expeditions to try and find Waltz's gold. He would end up taking his own life in 1943. Herman, meanwhile, had a massive falling out with his brother and Julia following their failed expedition and refused to talk with either ever again. The cause of his anger toward the two is that he personally blamed them for their failure to find Waltz's mine. And that might seem like quite a leap to make, but the story is that Herman learned that on the night before Waltz's death, both Julia and Reinhardt were with the old man. However, while waiting for the miner to breathe his last, the pair got drunk and consequently were unable to remember everything Waltz had told them, especially the bits about how to find his mine. Funny enough, though, Herman would spend the rest of his life searching for the mine, 
occasionally taking gigs working at nearby ranches to support his various expeditions. Sometime after 1933, he built himself a cabin on the south bank of Queen Creek, the actual creek and not the bedroom community. And he would die in 1953 after spending half a century looking for Waltz's gold. Before we close the book on this era of gold hunting, I should point out that Julia and the Petrash brothers were not the only ones who went into the mountains. You might recall from our episode on Waltz that there were other men who were there in the last hours of the Deutschman's life and may have gleaned some intelligence from him. A man named Dick Holmes and a good friend of his had been tasked by Julia to watch over Waltz while she went to fetch a doctor for him. And I mentioned at the time that Holmes and his friend left the house with a substantial quantity of gold, which Julia later accused them of stealing. In fact, slanderous statements against Holmes would be the norm until the end of Herman Petrash's life. Apparently, Holmes used at least some of this gold to finance his own trip into the superstitions to look for the mine, though documentation of his trips are scanty at best. And he would make more and more searches by himself until 1908, when he started bringing along his son, George, who was nicknamed Brownie. And Brownie would take up his father's cause and would be an active searcher for the Lost Dutchman mine for decades before he died in 1980. As you are well aware, the search for the mine didn't suddenly end after the failure of Julia, the Patrashes, and Holmes in the immediate aftermath of Waltz's death. And by now, the legend of the Lost Dutchman mine was starting to spread. Colinborn writes that the Arizona Republican newspaper ran articles about or mentioned a search for the mine in 1895, 1897, and again in 1899. He also mentioned plenty of other tantalizing bits about other people searching for Waltz's gold, such as a man named Sylvester Portella, who claimed to have found it in 1914, or another man named Lee Turner, who claimed to have found Spanish treasure in 1924. I honestly can't verify much of these two claims because there is so little information out there, though it seems to stand to reason that these went nowhere and could not be verified. One fun little note is that Colin Bourne mentions an Italian immigrant by the name of A.F. Banta making an extensive search of the superstitions for the gold mine in 1916. And this is fun because early state historian Thomas Farish, writing in 1915, actually mentions Banta as part of a roundup of prominent individuals in the territory. And Farish actually closes his couple paragraphs on Banta by saying he just saw the man a few months ago when he was preparing an expedition to hunt down the lost Dutchman mine. I do love it when sources agree with each other. But probably the most infamous case of the mysterious and tragic outcomes possible when searching for the lost Dutchman mine is that of Adolf Ruth. Ruth was a German immigrant, though he often told people that he had been born in New York City. He had been born around 1864, but by the 1880s was living in the U.S., and had a fairly mundane life, including time spent as a failed farmer in Kansas City before he graduated from a local veterinary college and was hired by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a meat inspector. Ruth was hardworking, though unremarkable, and we wouldn't be talking about him at all if it wasn't for the private interest in lost mines that started to consume him. 
But what sent him on a path to the superstitions was supposedly his son Erwin, then living in Texas, who stumbled into some old maps. This is all very convoluted, but I'll try to distill it down. Apparently, Irwin was an actual veterinarian of some kind, and during the Mexican Revolution, he was approached to help cure a spread of Texas tick fever in cattle belonging to Venusticiano Carranza, who would one day be president of Mexico. If you want to know more about Carranza, I'll get gush about Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, where he covered the chaos of the Mexican Revolution in depth. During his employ, Irwin was contacted by an old acquaintance, possibly an old Spanish teacher with the last name of Gonzalez, who had run afoul of Carranza and his faction and who now asked Irwin to get his family safely into Texas. In return, Gonzalez promised to hand over old maps showing the location of gold mines that had once been the foundation of the Gonzalez family's fortunes. Long story short, Irwin took the deal and walked away with maps that led to... not the superstitions. Instead, everything was pointing to what we know today as Anza Borrego Desert State Park in California. Now, either Irwin roped in his dad to help him search for these mines, or, and this is Cullenborn's recounting, he didn't care much about this old treasure hunt at all. In this version, Adolf Ruth basically tricks his son into coming with him to California by saying he just wanted to see the place and it would be a fun outing, and only told him about the treasure hunt after the Model T car had been rented. Either way, the pair found themselves out in the desert in December 1919, in the washes at the far end of Grapevine Canyon. When Irwin stopped to adjust the car's brakes in the mid-afternoon, Adolf, over his son's strong protests, started wandering off to immediately begin the hunt. When his father didn't come back, Irwin started the search for him, but eventually had to rope in additional help. After four days, they eventually found the older man at the bottom of a deep ravine, where he had fallen and broken his right thigh bone just below the hip. Ruth was taken to San Diego where he had surgery, including the insertion of a metal plate, which left him with one leg shorter than the other and a slight limp. And this is the first indication of how obsessed Ruth was becoming with seeking lost gold. Because he hadn't given his job any sort of notification of this trip, and it's only because of his steady record so far that he was able to return to work in August 1920, eight months after leaving for California. Still, Afterward, his work greatly suffered, both because of his injuries and because of his growing obsession with finding treasure. Two years later, his pay was cut because of his inattentiveness, decline in performance, and diminished capacity. And two years after that, in 1924, he retired with a small pension. Still, the allure of gold kept calling, and apparently he made a few more trips to the California desert with his son, though they always came away empty-handed. But this is when Ruth turned his attention to another of the maps, a smaller one that didn't seem to fit with the others at all. Apparently, they were informed by Mrs. Gonzalez that this map actually belonged to her husband's cousin's family, who had a gold mine that was supposedly wealthier than the one the Ruths had been looking for. And this other family had the surname of, wait for it, Peralta. 
Seriously, I know it's a common last name, but from here on out, I think I'll just doubt anything if the name Peralta is attached to it. Fortified with the Gonzales map and an 1895 article from the San Francisco Chronicle, Ruth decided by 1931 that he was going to head west and find the lost Dutchman mine. His family all strenuously objected to this plan. Ruth was nearly 70. He was only 5'5 and weighing something like 125 pounds with no idea what kind of situation he was walking into. He tried, apparently successfully, to mollify their fears by saying that he, quote, only wanted to sit on some warm rocks and get the rheumatism baked out of his bones, end quote. A couple months before starting out, Ruth had bought a new reliable car and even found a young man who was traveling across the country who offered to help drive if the old man could get him as far as Arizona. They didn't leave until May 4, 1931, and Ruth arrived in the Salt River Valley on May 13th. Those longtime residents of Arizona probably spotted a huge problem right there. He arrived at the beginning of summer, when temperatures were already guaranteed to be above 100 degrees. He'd landed at the Quarter Circle U Ranch, which sat in Peralta Canyon, or directly east of where the community of Gold Canyon is today. The ranch had been run for a couple decades by William Augustus Tex Barkley, who was known to offer hospitality to mine seekers in exchange for some work around his establishment. Barkley did everything in his power to delay this frail old man from going into an incredibly rugged wilderness during the middle of summer, but you can only hold off an obsessive person for so long. So he offered to guide Ruth into the mountains himself and stay with him if Ruth would just wait a few more days while the rancher delivered some cattle down to Florence Junction. And just to make sure, before he left on June 12, 1931, Barkley gave explicit orders to his workers not to help Ruth at all. Unfortunately, Ruth did manage to sweet-talk two cowboys into taking him into the mountains by offering them the use of his car and a bonus when he found the mine. It's also likely that he threatened to just walk into the mountains himself if they didn't help him. The two took the old man up to Willow Springs in West Boulder Canyon, where they helped set up his camp and then bid him adieu on June 13th. After this, Ruth was completely and utterly alone, except for another prospector who happened to stumble upon his camp. They talked for a bit before the prospector moved on, becoming the last man to see Ruth alive. When Barkley returned to his ranch on June 17th, he was at first incensed that Ruth had gone up into the mountains after all, and then he became worried about the old man's safety. The two men who had helped Ruth set up the camp were dispatched to retrieve him, but when they failed to locate Ruth, Barkley went up with a small party on June 20th to search. It was obvious that Ruth had been gone from his campsite for at least a day by the time this search had gotten underway, and after a few days of fruitless wandering around, they had to descend from the mountains to involve authorities. What followed was a 45-day search that stretched into July and August into some incredibly difficult conditions conducted by law enforcement officers, Quarter Circle U ranch employees, and miscellaneous others. Despite a reward offered by Ruth's family, even a plane chartered by his son Irwin, this search turned up nothing, 
except for a few scattered items such as packing paper Ruth used for various things and a handkerchief. By this point, Irwin was extremely pessimistic about his father's survival and assumed that he had died after falling into a ravine, much like what had happened in California. Except the tale is a little stranger than that. At the end of 1931, the Arizona Republican and the Phoenix Archaeological Commission sent a team into the superstitions to do fieldwork on any Amerindian settlements they could find. On December 11th, after coming out of Needle Canyon north of Bluff Springs Mountain, one of the dogs that the team had brought veered off in an unexpected direction before coming to a halt under a Palo Verde tree. And this is where the group found a human skull, still with some particles of flesh stuck to it in a two-inch hole in the left side and a gaping hole on the right. There's a rather famous photo of none other than Brownie Holmes, who was guiding this little expedition, holding this skull up so you can see the holes. Holmes was certain from the get-go that it was Ruth, but others weren't so sure. Eventually, dental records and two pathologists would confirm this, though just to be doubly sure, the skull was actually sent to the Curator of Physical Anthropology at the National Museum of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. for one final verification. The rest of Ruth's body, minus parts that had been scavenged by animals, were found on January 8, 1932, up on Blacktop Mountain, roughly three-quarters of a mile away from where the skull had been found. Along with his body, they found his miner's pickaxe, seemingly unused, watch, wallet, thermos, unfired gun, flashlight, and medicine kit. Now, officially, the death was chalked up to natural causes. Exposure, dehydration, fatigue, take your pick. But Ruth's family and many, many, many after them have disagreed vehemently with that conclusion. These usually point to the fact that the head and the body were found so far apart, and to the mystery of the holes in Ruth's skull. In fact, the curator at the Smithsonian who had examined the skull snuck into his analysis the opinion that Ruth had actually been shot, most likely from a 44 or 45 caliber gun. However, this sort of opinion was a little outside of this guy's wheelhouse. While he was perfect to analyze the shape of the skull to tell us it was from a recently deceased white male in his late 60s, he wasn't exactly qualified when it came to bullet wounds. Still, up to the present day, it's whispered that Ruth had been murdered for his maps, which were one of the few items missing from his person. And there is a small but significant history of mysterious deaths that occurred in the Superstition Mountains around this general time frame, including a beheading or two, which I plan to cover in a future episode. And for what it's worth, a miner named John Clemison, who went by the pen name Barry Storm, wrote several books about his experiences trying to find the lost mine in the superstitions in the 1930s and 1940s. In one of these books, Thunder God's Gold, he detailed a harrowing incident where he escaped from a mysterious sniper whom he dubbed Mr. X. I have not personally read his work, so I can't vouch for Storm's veracity on this anecdote, so I'll just say keep your grains of salt handy. However, there are some holes, if you will pardon the word choice, in the murder theory. 
First and foremost, the lack of plausible suspects. I will admit that Root didn't have the good sense to keep his mission a secret, and he talked a lot about his maps and his goals while he was at Barkley's ranch, so it's possible someone there overheard and then killed him. But this is just a theory as there are no concrete suspects. The most plausible are the two guys who took Ruth up into the mountains and knew exactly where he was, but they are exonerated mainly because they have the alibi of Joy riding in the car Ruth lent them while he was alone up in the mountains. Secondly, there is no proof that Ruth had been beheaded. The distance between the skull and the body could be chalked up to anything from predators to flash flooding from rainfall that occurred right before the skull was found. Being chewed on by a predator or knocked about by running water would also account for the holes in the skull itself, without the need for a gun. And there was rainfall that the archaeological party encountered before the dog alerted to the skull, so the theory that it had been moved by natural forces takes on quite a bit of weight. The third strike against the murder theory is that nothing else looked like it had gone through the stress of a gunshot. For example, Ruth's hat was perfectly intact, and it goes without saying that this wouldn't be the case if someone had shot him in the head. But even if you assume that Ruth had taken off his hat for some reason, his glasses were also found in pristine condition. And these weren't just reading spectacles. Ruth actually used his glasses day in and day out. As a lifelong wearer of glasses, I can attest to the fact that you don't really take those off for more than a moment. I've never been personally shot in the head, but I can imagine the glasses would not have survived intact. Okay, even if we say for the sake of argument that Root's glasses were not on his face, then we also have to deal with the fact that he wore dentures, and those too were found intact. It's not outside the realm of possibility that Ruth had been shot, but it's certainly unlikely overall, and downright implausible once you include those factors. Now, there is one more facet to this case that I saved until last, and that is the matter of the note Ruth had scribbled to himself. Among his torn clothing, the men that found Ruth's body also came upon some papers. One was a government topographical survey map, which was covered with Ruth's own annotations. The other was basically notepaper containing excerpts from that 1895 newspaper article that had spurred Ruth to start his search for the Lost Dutchman mine in the first place. But to these quotations, Ruth had written something cryptic at the bottom. He added those famous lines of Julius Caesar, Veni, Vidi, Vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. That one line, plus the fact that the Gonzales maps were missing, have also led to a lot of speculation that perhaps Ruth did find the mine, but that someone else, someone he met up in the mountains perhaps, had done him in and taken the map for himself. But here again, we dive deep into the realm of speculation. For what it's worth, after Ruth's body and notes were discovered, Barkley, the ranch owner, and a friend named Jeff Adams spent two days wandering around the superstitions, trying to see if they could stumble upon the mine using Ruth's notes. But after a couple days had passed, they gave it up as a bad job and rode back into civilization. The death of Adolf Ruth has turned into one of the major set pieces for the Lost Dutchman Mine legend. 
believers use it as proof that there is something happening in the superstitions and maybe even forces bent on keeping people from discovering the mine. Meanwhile, skeptics point to it as another sad case of how obsession over a story can lead unprepared men into incredibly harsh terrain where they meet a predictable end. And again, I must stress that these sorts of things continue to happen up to today. We opened last week with the sad tale of Jesse Capon, the Denver bellhop who became obsessed with the Lost Dutchman mine and disappeared during a search in 2009, only for his body to be found three years later. And then the next year, 2010, three treasure hunters from Utah also disappeared while looking for the mine. One of them had become lost when hiking in the same area the previous year and had to be rescued. Three sets of remains were found in January 2011, which were more than likely these same men. I can't say for certain whether the mine actually exists, or whether the idea of gold in the superstitions is just fantasy and folklore. But one thing is for certain. The tale of the Lost Dutchman Mine remains one of the most alluring and dangerous attractions Arizona has to offer. I'm going to leave things here for this week, and for a couple weeks, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to have to do this right after taking a week off, but I'm not going to put out new episodes for the next two weeks. Now, to be fair, I've been planning to take the next two weeks off for months, as I have annual plans every 4th of July weekend. The excuse for last week was a family funeral, which you can't really plan for. But I'm taking two weeks now because, as you may have noticed, we have started crossing over the holy line of demarcation into the 20th century. And that means I need to take some time to recover from my holiday plans and then orient myself for how I want the podcast to proceed moving forward. So join me on July 16th, as we'll spend a couple episodes covering a few items from the 1800s that I want to wrap up, and then we'll head boldly into the 1900s together. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.